Okay, today we are in the second sermon in a summer series that is called Clothed in Christ. That's what the series is as a whole. It's something of a biblical theology looking at the theme of clothing as it runs throughout scripture. If you were not with us last week, the sermon's available online. Uh, and I'd encourage you to take a listen to that as we focus particularly on being clothed by God and looked at Genesis chapters uh, 2 and 3 with that theme. Today, we're going to be considering how Jesus was clothed. And I titled the sermon today, Behold, the Bridegroom Cometh. Uh, that's from a passage in Matthew, and it was reflected in the hymn that we just sang as the second hymn this morning, but perhaps it would be helpful, at least for part of the way we might think about this this morning, to imagine yourself being at a wedding and before the bridal party actually comes out and everyone turns their attention to the bridal party, you have the bridegroom who comes to the front, bridegroom aka groom, uh, but often called bridegroom in uh, scripture and in hymnody. That's the reason for behold the bridegroom cometh today. But when you look at the groom, you're looking at all aspects of him. You're looking at how he looks. You're looking at his face and the expressions are on there. And you're also looking at what he is wearing today. And that's what we're going to be doing today. Looking at what the bridegroom is wearing. And in order to introduce us to that, in order to get us thinking about the clothing of Christ, I've put three passages in your bulletins this morning. I think you'll find it much more convenient to follow along in your bulletins rather than trying to turn back and forth in your Bible to uh, these passages. But this is the Word of God, and here then, this description that we have in the Gospels in various places about the clothing of Jesus, beginning with the Nativity in Luke chapter 2. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And now we go to the transfiguration, the account as it is recorded in Mark chapter 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. 
and then just leading up to the crucifixion, this passage from Mark chapter 15. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, hail the king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus today. Through the eyes of faith, through the working of your word, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we would see Jesus and thus behold you, our great God. We thank you for the incarnation. And we thank you for your word. And we pray in his name. Amen. When we began last week, I made this simple observation that whether we want to admit it or not, clothing communicates. What you have on your body is saying something. And, and all sorts of old sayings abound as it relates to how clothing communicates. Clothing makes the man. You know who said that one, who is credited with saying that one? That's Mark Twain. Clothing makes the man, and here's the way the rest of this goes. Clothing makes the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. <laughs> Classic Twain. But apparently that comes also a little bit earlier. Shakespeare wrote this, for the apparel oft proclaims the person. The apparel oft proclaims the person. We're accustomed for example, to hearing the phrase fashion statement, right? Fashion statement being usually associated with something that is unique, something that is perhaps very colorful, something that stands out in some way, maybe something that is a little bit outlandish. But the reality is fashion is always making statements. Whether it's a fashion statement piece or not, fashion is always making statements. What you are wearing is always saying something about you, even if that statement happens to be, I don't care what I wear. It's talking, it's communicating that that is the reality. And the reality is this, we adjust our fashion, we adjust our clothes all the time, right? All the time, it happens throughout history, according to styles that are either in fashion or are out of fashion, and according to day and age and various cultures, we're always adjusting our fashion. And frankly, we do that many times throughout the day as well and throughout our lives. Think of uh, when you were a kid or think of your own children now and how much they love to dress up. Kids love to dress up and with the simplicity of putting on a hat, forget everything else they like to dress up in, you can change who you are. Why? Because clothing matters. It, it's related to our identity. So you can put on a hat and become a fireman. You can put on a hat and become Davy Crockett or become a policeman or become a baseball player or a football player just by putting something on your head. You can put on the most simple dress in the world and you become a princess when you put that dress on. 
All sorts of things can happen. You can become a cowboy, you can become an Indian, you can do it all just by changing the clothes that are on you. Now, some of you uh, are going to schools where you wear a uniform when you go to school, and that has a particular intention. If you don't understand it, you can ask the school administrators. They've got some reason why they're having you wear a uniform to school. Some of you go to work, and when you go to work, you put on a suit and tie to go to work. Uh, some of you don't have to do that. You go to work and you go for dress casual, perhaps, or uh, casual Fridays uh, when you get to wear jeans or wear whatever it is you would like to wear. Uh, I know some of you, when you go to work, you put on lab coats to go to work. And some of you that I've spoken to put on not only lab coats, but you've got to get in full protective, isolating gear for the work that you do so that nothing on you is exposed at all. And that communicates something. It communicates what you're doing. If we saw you dressed like that, we'd know you're doing something that is dangerous, that can't be contaminated either. You don't want to contaminate it or you don't want to be contaminated by it in the work that you do. And we change clothes all the time. You wear one thing when we're playing sports, you wear another when you're going to work outside, and you wear, I hope, something else when you go to a wedding. When you go to a wedding, you wear something else. And our question today then is what does Jesus wear? What does he wear metaphorically? What does he wear literally? And we only have a few scraps from scripture to guide us in what he literally wears. But what does he wear symbolically for the work that he does? He's our redeemer. He is our deliverer. And so what does a divine human redeemer wear to do the work that has been entrusted to him? Now, as our redeemer, uh, we saw this a little bit in the texts that were before us this morning from the uh, Westminster Confession and in things that we've talked about throughout uh, 1 Samuel, the series that preceded this one. As our Redeemer, he is functioning as our prophet and our priest and our king. What do you wear as prophet, priest, and kingly Redeemer? We see him describe himself. We see others describe him as the bridegroom to his people. What do you wear if you are the bridegroom to the people of God? How do you dress for that? Now, in the weeks to come, not this Sunday, but in the weeks to come, we're going to see that this question actually has significant application to us as well, to what we wear at least symbolically, if not literally, what we wear, because the scripture teaches us that it matters to the king what you wear to the wedding of the son. Listen to this passage. Now, this is a parable, okay? So you cannot go out and buy yourself a set of clothes for this parable to describe what I'm about to read for us. But listen to the parable. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. You've got to have the right clothes. You've got to be dressed for the occasion of the wedding of the son of the king. And if not, the king sends you elsewhere. But for now, we'll get there, and we'll get to that and how this derivatively applies to us. But for now, the only goal that I have for us today is to behold the bridegroom, to look at him, to see how he is adorned. And as we do so, as we consider Christ and what he looks like, we're immediately confronted when we consider Scripture by two seemingly incompatible realities. Okay, here, here are the two realities. Reality number one is the beauty of the Son. The beauty of the eternal Son of God and then the beauty of the eternal Son of God become the incarnate Son of God. So listen to a description of him taken from Psalm 45. It's a psalm that we will sing at the close of our worship today. But this is the description of the one who is coming, of the bridegroom who stands ready to receive the bride. You are the most handsome of the sons of man. God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. The son of man, the bridegroom, is the singularly most handsome of the sons of men. The beauty is one thing that we immediately see. But if you know scripture, we're confronted by a second reality, and that is this. The unsightliness of the anointed one, of the one who comes into this world. Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty and no beauty that we should desire him. He was a man of sorrows and as one from whom men hide their faces. Now try and think, try and hold both of those images next to one another for a moment. On the one hand, you have beauty and handsomeness in the description of him. On the other hand, you've got unsightliness, you've got ugliness, you've got something that is repellent when you look at it physically. On the, on the one hand, you've got gladness. You are anointed with gladness above your companions. On the other hand, you've got, you're a man of sorrows. And if we put it from our perspective, we've got one to whom we are drawn because of his beauty, because of his gladness, because you want to be around that person. And on the other hand, you've got one from whom men hide their faces, one who is repugnant, one who is disgusting. Now to put those in categories that are perhaps more familiar to us and should be at least familiar to us because of the readings that we did from the Westminster Catechism this morning, as we behold the Son of God, the Bridegroom, come into the world, we behold him and must behold him both in his estate of humiliation and his estate of exaltation as well. That's the images of those two things in the Old Testament. Psalm 45, the state of his exaltation. Isaiah 53, 
the estate of his humiliation that is set before us, and the reality is that is reflected in his clothing. Now today then, what we're going to do is we're just going to look at those things, the, the estate of humiliation and the clothing that reflects it, and then we will look at the state of exaltation and the clothing that reflects his exaltation. But as we do so, I want you to keep this in mind, that for all eternity, for all eternity past, the eternal Son of God dwells in glory and light. And as the eternal Son of God, he is glory in, in light. He's always been beautiful. He's always been beloved. He has always been robed in light. And perhaps, well, if you were with us uh, last year, we went through Philippians chapter 2. Perhaps you can think about it this way. When he enters into the world, he takes off the robe of light with which he is adorned, and he puts on at that time in the role of redeemer the garments of humiliation. And he, the creator, becomes clothed in flesh. Right? That's what our hymns say. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. For us, flesh isn't a humbling thing. Flesh is how we were created. And as we've seen in Psalm 8, we were crowned with glory and honor as we were created in flesh. But for the creator to take on the clothing, the flesh of the creature, that in and of itself is humiliation. But even more than that, he doesn't, Jesus, doesn't appear on earth as a full-grown man, as a man with a perfected body and, and, and encased in flesh. Instead, he's born of a woman and he comes into the world as a naked baby covered, as all babies are, with water and with blood as he comes into this world. He has taken the form of a ser servant. He has clothed himself in humiliation by the flesh itself, humbling himself. And he takes on the garments according to that. He's wrapped in the swaddling cloths that are there and laid in a manger. Now, swaddling cloths may have been a common thing, but they're not a common thing when you're the eternal son of God who's been robed in life, light for all eternity. To be wrapped in swaddling cloths and to be laid in a manger is to say there's no royal trappings associated with this. This is humility as low as it can be in terms of coming into this world. He took upon himself the garments of creaturehood, which is to say our flesh, and he took upon himself not only the garments of creaturehood, but the garments of who we had become, which is to say the filthy rags with which we are clothed, the clothed the garments of fallen humanity. Now, there are two places in your Bible where this is pictured with incredible power. The first is with the washing of the disciples' feet. Look at the front of 
your bulletins for just a moment. Jesus girds himself. He dresses himself as the lowest of low, as the meanest of the mean servants that there could possibly be. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Here's what D.A. Carson says about that. His act of humility is as unnecessary as it is stunning and is simultaneously a display of love, a symbol of cleansing, and a model of Christian conduct. Behold, the bridegroom washing in the garments of a slave the feet of those who are coming to the feast. Let's say you go to a wedding and you're ready to be seated by one of the ushers, but instead of being seated by one of the ushers, there's the groom. And he's got his coat off and he's got his bow tie off and he's got his vest off or cummerbund off, whatever it is. His shirt, tuck shirt is opened up. His pants are rolled up a little bit. He's got a towel around him. And he says, before you come in, I'm going to wash your feet. We, we would say, would we not, with Peter? Uh-uh. There's no way you're doing this. You are the groom. I'm the guest. You're not washing my feet. But there it is, the picture of his humiliation. Secondly, we see the humiliation of his death. And the clothing of that humiliation is important to us. He is stripped. And then he's beaten. Perhaps that takes place two times. Stripped and beaten, stripped and beaten. And then he's dressed up in what William Lane calls a mocking masquerade, a farcical play, a grotesque vaudeville, wherein the soldiers were like, oh, right, you're a king. All right, great. Wear this. Wear this. Take this little piece of purple that we've got here. Wear that. Here's a crown to put on your heads. Hail to you, king. He's stripped again after that. His own clothes are put back on him. He's led to the cross where he is stripped again. Maybe, maybe he had a loincloth. Typically, people were crucified naked. To the Jews, that was so repugnant that sometimes there was a condescension to the Jews to have a loincloth. Whether or not Jesus had a loincloth on, we don't know. Stripped again, William Lane. Death by crucifixion was not only cruel, everything about it was degrading. How can we make this the most shameful death possible in every way that we can think of? And as he suffers, they divide his garments amongst them. To add further insult, they take his clothes in front of them, divide them up. You take one, you take one, you take one for the four soldiers who were there. And then they cast lots for the last garment. And that's on the front of your bulletins as well. Naked, he came into the world. And naked on the cross, 
he returns. His body is taken down. His body is taken down from the cross. And at this point, he is wrapped, swaddled again. Now, he is wrapped in linen cloths. Linen cloths were costly, and to wrap him again was an honor. That was significant that linen cloths are used in this. Perhaps it foreshadows a hope, but nevertheless, they're grave clothes. The final clothes that Jesus ends up in, in his humiliation, are grave clothes. He's wrapped up. He's, he's covered in the earth, inside of a tomb, with a face cloth over top of him, enduring the power of death for a time. And his humiliation, what kind of clothes do you wear? Jesus wore the clothes that were necessary to redeem us, which is to say, he wore our clothes. He took upon himself our clothes of shame and the nakedness that rightly belonged to us. And that's what he wore in his humiliation. But they aren't his only clothes and they are not his final clothes. You remember when Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, Lazarus came out and when Lazarus came out, he was wrapped still in the grave clothes in which he had been buried. And Jesus sees that and says, unbind him, take him out of those clothes that are currently wrapped around him. He's not dead. He's alive and those clothes don't belong on him. When the disciples go to the tomb, that Easter morning, they find, and we read it in the scriptures, they find something incredibly strange, which is the linen cloths are there. The faith face cloth is there, and it's folded up, and all of that, of course, is odd. They're expecting to find wrapped up Jesus. That's what should be in this tomb. But when they look in, they see these cloths folded up, and that's odd. It's odd for any number of reasons, but one is if somebody moved the body, if for some reason somebody wanted to move the body to another tomb, you don't unwrap the body. You don't unwrap the body. You, you keep the body in the linen cloths, and if somebody wanted to steal the body, then you don't leave the cloths behind, and you certainly don't fold them because the value of the body is in the cloth. Linen is valuable, so you don't leave it behind. But here they look in, and they see the linen cloths there, and they see the face cloth folded up next to them. Interpretation. The clothes of humiliation and death don't belong on Jesus anymore. He is unbound. For now he has accomplished his redemptive work. He is the risen, the exalted Lord and Savior. And there are different clothes for exaltation than there are for humiliation. A brief but important picture of this is given to us at the transfiguration 
of our Lord that we read from Mark just a few moments ago. Perhaps we can think, just by way of a little parallel here, a little idea, perhaps we can think of the transfiguration as a fitting. A fitting prior to a wedding. I got to go to a fitting for Nate prior to the wedding. You see him in the clothes that are going to be his at the day of the wedding, but then you got to get out of that. You got to get out of them because the time hasn't arrived yet for that. But guess what? I got to go to Janae's fitting as well. Not every one of you can say that. I got to go to Janae's fitting and to see as well, to see her resplendent in the, the, the bridal gear that is about to be on her and to be decking her for this occasion, but then it has to come off. Because not yet. You're getting a glimpse at what will be there. Before the transfiguration, Jesus had told his disciples once again that he was going to suffer, that he would be killed, and that he would be raised up again on the third day. The transfiguration is an anticipation of that resurrection. It's an anticipation in visual form, in audible form as well, of the exaltation that will belong to him, that has in one sense always belonged to him as the eternal son of God, but now will belong to him particularly as the incarnate son of God. Those clothes gleaming white as the incarnate son of God are not his yet. He has to suffer and he has to die and then the exaltation will come. And that's the picture that we get in the transfiguration. And God is saying in the midst of it, in all that is about to take place, I am sovereign, and all that you are about to see is purposefully redemptive in what is going to take place in the life of my son, and I'm telling you what's going to happen afterward by showing you the glory that belongs to my son, by showing you his radiance. And so he's transformed in their sight. His face changes, becoming radiant, and his clothes change. They become, in the words of Matthew, white as light. In the words of Luke, dazzling white. In the words of Mark that we read earlier, they become radiant. They become intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. What's the explanation of that? Luke tells us they saw his glory. That's what they saw. They got a glimpse of something. They got a glimpse of his glory and it was white as light and manifest in his clothes. It is the glory of the eternal son. It is the glory of the soon-to-be-exalted incarnate son. Now, we're not going to go through this in any kind of depth, but of course, as we work our way then to the end of Scripture, he is pictured with a long robe and a golden sash, and on that robe, on that robe, it is written, King of kings and Lord of of lords. How's that for a fashion statement? Clear enough? Clothes didn't make this man, but clothes marked that man. They marked who he was. His apparel proclaims who he is, describes who he is. So you go to work. 
When you go to work tomorrow, you will put on your work clothes. And if any of us were to go to war, we would put on battle gear. We'd put on a helmet. We'd put on Kevlar. You go to a wedding, and you put on the best, especially if you're the bridegroom. You put on the best in anticipation of your bride that is coming to you to redeem us since there was no man and no one on earth to intercede, and this is hearkening now back to the Isaiah passage that we read earlier, the Son of God clothed himself in flesh. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He got ready to do the work that was entrusted to him to win the victory that only he could win. Behold your Redeemer. Behold your Redeemer in swaddling cloths, with his garment taken off and a towel wrapped around him. Behold your Redeemer in a purple robe, being mocked for who he is. Now behold your Redeemer in blazing white clothes, with that name written on him. Behold the warrior for your salvation. Behold your king and behold your bridegroom coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking off the clothing of light and of glory and of majesty and of splendor, of donning yourself with the clothing of our humiliation and of flesh taking the form of a servant, you humbled yourself. And we thank you now for the clothing which belongs to you, the God-man, the exalted clothing of the righteous warrior king who has won our victory. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be our vision that we would see you and that we would see you exalted in our lives and that it would give to us hope and comfort. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.